Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you, and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. All right, we are live. Uh, Hello to everyone watching on YouTube. Uh, Hello to everyone everywhere uh, across the internet. Uh, This is the Writers Guild of Alberta's online reading series. Uh, This evening we're featuring uh, the wonderful Edmonton-based poet, novelist, uh, you know, all around, all around fantastic writer, Alison Clark. Uh, My name is Brandon Wintz. I am a poet, spoken word artist, uh, facilitator, uh, educator, and it is my honor uh, to be facilitating and, and interviewing uh, Allison this evening about uh, the release and the process and the successes and challenges of uh, her new book called Phyllis, which is uh, being published by the University of Calgary Press. Uh, so, I mean, I can't I can't see anybody, but uh, join me in welcoming uh, the wonderful Allison Clark. I'm just going to pull up uh, Allison's uh, bio real quick to let you know uh, how accomplished this writer is. So, without further ado, uh, Allison Clark is a poet and fantasy author who has a master's degree in children's literature from Hollis University. She is also a creative writing and visual arts instructor and experiences life as a spoken word artist. Allison is the author of Phyllis a poetry collection to be published by the University of Calgary Press in October 2020, which is today, which is now. Um, <laughs> she's the author of The Sisterhood, a young adult fantasy novel about Opie, a sorceress daughter, a sorceress's daughter and her best friend, Ori, who is a dragon and the journey that they go on to save the universe. The Sisterhood is book one of the Sisterhood series for which Allison won the 2016 Writer of the Year Award from Diversity Magazine. Second book in the series is called Racine, and the third is Circle, which was released in November of 2018. Allison believes that storytelling can change the world. And so now uh, we have the pleasure, we have the delight of uh, hearing Allison read excerpts from her new book, uh, Phyllis. Take it away, Allison. Okay. So thank you all for joining me. It's been quite the process for this book to manifest herself. So briefly, Phyllis was a slave um, navigating different worlds and managed miraculously against all odds to publish a book of poetry in 1773. So my book chronicles her fantastic inspirational journey of not only publishing her book of poetry, but using it as a gateway to her freedom. So many different things going on and also a gateway, a pathway for her people, people of color to also get their emancipation, even though it happened further down the road. But she was one of the architects, one of the ancestors, I would say, that helped many black people people later in time get their freedom. So now I'm gonna read some excerpts of Phyllis. Okay, here we go. So, it's chronicling her journey. I'm gonna read um, a couple of poems when she was on, one poem that was focusing on her being on a slave ship and her genesis from that journey 
obviously full of trauma, hardship, and so on, and coming to the new role for her, which was Boston in Massachusetts, where she later met up with a family who took her in as a slave, purchased her as a slave, but ironically, in interesting ways, they gave her um, education, which was the bridge, the gateway for her to write beautiful poetry, alluding to many different things. And of course, that it was important for people of color to be free, being human beings. And so that's what my book is about. And I'll get right into some excerpts. Chrysalis. Lifeless in an aquatic tomb. That is how I felt on his floating death trap. Ship of oak, snow tint sail shouting into the wind. The slaves were whipped, forced to. The music of macabre possession, seizures of the dance. Exercise? Futile. Too dehydrated, too hungry, fed once to if we were lucky. The food in buckets, people fighting for scraps, mush, and still in chains. The survival of the, no, the most lucky. Shackled Africans being on a con drum, the patent rhythms of a neighboring tribe whose land was all green clad mountains. It was an eternal hum, a pulsating beat resonance of timeless time, son of a chief, a gift. Similar with reverberate creating a troubling music. The ancestors nodded, hovering the cloud of light. Women's skin a light mahogany or deep mocha. Dressed in bright clothing, fuchsia, indigo, gold, and emerald. This music, the drum, this haunting an art form, but now the suffering. The faces of the drummers, masks, a convulsing, a mourning that cannot be too horrifying. As the slavers would see, and more bodies would be hurled overboard. Feet. Tension like walking in fragments of glass. Glimpses. I'm hovering over the ethereal plane and pictures, words, voices rush through my head like a flood. The pulsing of water, ferocious in its intent. Streams become rivers, become oceans. My words will be that papyrical lantern. My ideas ignited, the ancestors tell me, catapulting a future abolitionist, Edmund Quincy, into action. Often reading my work, the shining encouragement of his grandmother, the callous, the bright star, the ancestors, their clothing, long curves, syncopation, synergy, a comfort, riverbanks, yet yearning possibility. A cow of bronzy gold appears, the Habanaya that's a gift to those, a symbol of goodwill and prosperity. The golden light that surrounds the cow reflects off her horns, and her soft moves comfort me. I am at age eight, chalking words on bedroom walls, fresh from the floating tomb crossing the middle of passage, the horse latitude, liquid grace of my people, no value to cramp for just a cramp for home, screams in those waters forever resounding. Look, mother, she writes. She's learning how to, how glorious. Mary, the daughter of the Wheatley said with a smile. Nathaniel, her twin brother, was her mirror image. The only difference was her sex. The mother, Susanna, also looked pleased and said, I'll talk to your father, but I think, Phyllis, we taught how to read and write. You will give instruction. Susanna winked. Yes, I think it is possible. The two flounced away in the flurry of skirts. F, fire. 
the ancestors, all of them, they start to dance. They start to dance, it's rhythm that I'm hearing. From the dawn, the dawn of time, the sky, the fairy tone, the aurora kiss, stories have been told around the fire. Fire is where it all began, late to see the heat to warm, the heat to cook, the color to be wished, to be a spiritual link to the other world, connecting us to our ancestors, to know the stories, the secrets of before, so we can listen to them. To know, to listen, to know, to know. That's what they say. Learn from us. Learn from our mistakes. Learn from our triumphs. Learn from our downfalls. This is a gift that we give to you. This is a gift. This is a gift. Take it and pass on what you learn in the next generation. My songs, my lays, I will pass on to the next generation, but also pass on to whoever will hear me, to hear my pleas, to free my people, all of my people, so we can cover our own destiny, to be able to reach for possibility. I must do this by appealing through story and mythology, which is a conduit for nine people, but also a spark to action, strongly appealing to someone's feelings of guilt. I appeal to someone more compass. I did my poem about New Cambridge, the young men who study there, the future. I appeal from Africa seek through stories familiar that Pope referred to his own work, especially translating Homer. I learned from those who guide me, like Master Biles, talented, inspired by the pen. This way, through stories and narrative, through dream conjured by the Egyptians, the Greeks, a classic story, through me swimming through a sea of Latin and other languages, yet sense creating a world, a universe that connect readers on a dream, not only delight and wonder, but let us see that shackling a part of humanity, enslaving a certain part of humanity, the Africa is wrong. I must do it in a way that will not offend, that will not unleash anger against me or my cause, but instead lend a man's capacity empathy and a sense of belief in justice for all. That is my mission. That is my dream in Ethiopia. That is why I'm still here. Mother. Mother, the muses, Nemusine, on the open shore, here I am to receive your lore. I will shoot me out with Captain Robert Kalef and Nathaniel, son of Master Wheatley. I was singing my lays in Britannia. So much has been orchestrated. And I am one note among many. The ship, the London packet, is waiting anchor for the realm literary England, May 1773. The wind, the zephyr, and his daughter whispered in my ear, listen, wait, listen, that closed my eyes, a ball of light. Dragging across the sky leaves a path of fiery gold against the azure ground. The chariot going slow, but surging in brilliance. The Nemesine ran gloriously, her chair powered by dreams, images, memories, visual stories, imagined tellings of what could be, but was ready to come. The one with eyes of a force kicked up from Zephyr's daughter's breath. Aurora then emerges from the shadow of scepter in her hand. The ball of flames, seashing the sky, tracked the path of fire. The chariot disappears, so does Aurora. And the mother of the music seems to mid-air aloft. No horse horse of white appears. He has wings. She rises and falls the following the gilded way until the ball turns white gold. She disappears. She reappears and a shadow shifts the branches, tossing the wind arms of night, the ebony friendly being a velvet ocean, and a segue of silver in an orb. A mother portal now traverses the aerial lair. I continue to close my eyes. Mother Nemusine, give me articulation. My community souls are like worthy comrade. Your gifts will be those who honor my work, my book be fresh from dreams, hopes and memories manifesting in black ink, the pages in ivory chapel, and the words ebony pews. For I must revise my poetry to intrigue future patrons with my impending publication. Give me the power of your daughters, especially the sign of poetry that my recollection, my recitation, of words emblazoned by Pope, Shakespeare, and Sappho will echo and reverberate sonorous, undergo tones to the ears. The palette of sound. Meet me your tenth daughter. 
cause of ancestral memory, or can be the word, image, and sound. Let me be the harp on which you play, so that my song may make those weep with tears of jubilation. I silently mouth these words, but they were not silent, but waves of prayer, hope, a kneeling on a star, looking up into the heavens, a tapestried color, a dark cerulean, swirls of fuchsia and orange, fiery champagne, unforgettable violets, merging to a crescendo of emerald, gold, and vermilion. That's part of um, the Odyssey that is Hillis. The um, portrait collection, I think, resounds in many ways. Has many different voices in this collection purposely. It's all not only story of Phyllis, but other people who were inspired by her. And so I'm very proud of this collection and what she has to say. Great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing uh, so passionately. You know, we can feel, or I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself. You know, I can feel uh, your investment in this work, you know, your, your, your pride in this work. Uh, yeah, your, your own humanity kind of bursting forth. Uh, from the pages, which is actually, you know, obviously very appropriate to the subject matter that you're writing about. So uh, let me begin at the beginning um, in the sense of asking uh, what what it was about Phyllis's story, what it was about Phyllis's poetry uh, that made you want to uh, engage with her life in this way, by which I also mean um, not just engage with the history of her life, but, but uh, to do so rendered in, in such a poetic form. I think just her work just called to me. And I think it's also important to read between the lines. And there are camps in the academic world that didn't quite get her. And she used a lot of really clever wordplay, like the word patron, and she referred to um, as a Macenas, I think. And even his name is a word, it means patron, generous patron. And she was doing a, a double wordplay because patron also means a person gives another individual their freedom. So two things going on at the same time, and that's what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And she had to do this because, well, being a slave, and I kind of referred to it in this book, um, in this section of the poems, how um, being slaves, people of color, they were uh, subject to a curfew, basically, and worse. And if they were out at a certain time of, of day or night, um, the, the forces, the authoritarian forces that we could apprehend black people and take them to wherever. So it was illustrating how black people really were not seen as human beings. And not only were they seen as property, we just didn't, didn't have any rights at all. And so this is the milieu that she was growing up with. So she couldn't openly talk about being against slavery. There's one poem which she kind of alludes to it, but she really didn't talk about how she felt. She never mentioned being on a slave ship. There are um, writings saying that she was actually sexually assaulted as a child on that slave ship. So no matter what happened, if it did or not, it was still trauma anyway, and she never wrote about it at all. She never wrote about um, her life in, in Africa, which is either Gambia, Senegal, I think it's Senegal, but no one really knows exactly where she was born, but the, I'm sure she was very happy where she was. She never wrote about that. And it's kind of obvious, it's too hard. It's too traumatic. So these poems called to me, and in her allude, alluding to the Greek and classical mythology, the Roman, 
because she knew that people, the audience who were reading this book will be mainly white. And she's advocating to these people to be part of the abolitionist forces, right? To free black people, not just herself, but other people. And I think it's just very clever. And I just, I think her battle as a black woman is so relevant today. And I think of George Floyd and the, the issues also she faced are so obstacles we face today as black people. And I really, really believe that. Mm -hmm. And so that also called to me, um, not when I was first, you know, learning about Phyllis and when I write about her, when I was writing about her during the lockdown, um, I was working on the edits and creating new poems during the lockdown. And maybe it did influence me in one way or the other, I don't know, but people who've read this collection have said that it called to them as like a call to action, but what was happening with, um, you know, because what happened with George Floyd and all the protests that manifested from his unfortunate death. And, um, you know, purposely, consciously, unconsciously, me that was resonant. But I think mainly it's because what she dealt with, what she faced is still what we're dealing with now as people of color, which is very really sad. And she she lived in the 18th century, or 2020. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, she called to me. And in fact, she's a child prodigy. She learned Latin and Greek. Uh, she started learning how to read and write at eight or nine. She was brilliant. And she should have been teaching at colleges, universities. I think I, I referred to in the poems. She should have been teaching at Harvard, which they call the New Cambridge. That's what they call it back then, the New Cambridge. Oh, it was Harvard. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a poem about speaking to people at Harvard. She obviously couldn't go, but in the role, the role of her imagination, she could write about how she was speaking to these students who um, became clerks or, or reverends and went to Harvard. But in her imagination, she can imagine being in Harvard and talking to these people because in reality, she couldn't do that, being Black. Right? Mm -hmm. So the imagination being the gateway. So I think all these things called to me the power of story. Myth mythology is story and the ancestors' story. And I know the ancestors guided her big time. I know they did. Okay. Yeah, I'm, 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 you know, you, you were mentioning uh, several times how, how it is that, you know, Phyllis's story uh, casts a shadow or casts a light or there's a parallel. Uh, between her struggles and and what we're going through uh, now as Black people in North America, and so that that makes me want to ask about um, your experience as a writer in terms of doing the research that that led to this book. Um, you know, one of my favorite um, scholars, one of my favorite writers, uh, is a writer from New York called uh, Sahida Hartman, and she she deals with history a lot in the archive, and she talks about how you know. Uh, the archive. The archive is is a political space. The archive is is a is a space that that also speaks back. You know, like it's not a a passive experience digging through the archives. So, what was what was your experience uh, doing the research for this project uh, as a fellow Black woman writer uh, and feeling or 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 relating to uh, Phyllis's own life and her own struggles? What was that like for you? I think um, you had to dig very deeply. Because also there's not really anything written about Phyllis, like her personal life, there are no letters, there's no mm -hmm. diaries. So you go into other academic sources, but really you have to start with the word, the book itself. And I've told people omissions can be more powerful than the words themselves. And the fact that she didn't write about the slave ship that she was on, the fact she didn't really talk about her previous life in Senegal or Gambia, it spoke to me how painful that was really. 
So I did a lot of academic research too, and access some some limited access to academic databases. But to be honest, it kind of followed my own gut instinct of what was going on anyway. It kind of confirmed what I already knew. It's kind of hard to explain, but there's just a lot of things going on. But I mean, um, Mather Biles was her mentor. I had a feeling because of the importance of libraries. He had a massive library. He was a Harvard librarian. He trained um, as, a, I guess, a reverend, like his uncle, Cotton Mather. And there's another guy, I can't remember right now, um, another kind of magistrate, government official. He also had a massive library. And I, I knew she had access and she did. And I, I looked it up and she did. And Mather Biles was also her neighbor. <laughs> but I kind of had a feeling. And then Mather Biles knew Alexander Pope too. And he, she was re-influenced by him because, of course, he translated Homer. So getting the mythology, the Greek mythology again, right, which is really important in her work as a way to reach the audience. But again, I would say you're right about the academic space and there can be biases. And I think really you have to look at the word itself and be guided by the, the, the piece. And then you go into the academic, but you really have to look what was this individual trying to say? And not just the words on the paper. And I think people forget about the importance of reading between the lines and what is not said. And seriously, the omissions can be just as powerful, if not more powerful than what is actually on the page, is what you actually have to work with. But when I went to uh, University of U of A and all that, we talked about the importance of reading between the lines and really understanding and appreciating and learning and analyzing the omissions too. And that should be your, 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 your guide is the actual work. And then the academic goes into play, but it shouldn't be the other way. It should be the work because it's the voice of the artist. You all work with that first and then it manifests into leading to bridge and on archways into the academic article. So it's, it's the way to go because you can get lost in academia and academia. I read so many articles, but <laughs> Mm -hmm. You can get lost in sidetracks. You don't want to do you gotta, you gotta keep the focus to the work itself. So definitely, but you have to go, we got to see in the work itself. What is this person trying to say? He or she? What are they trying and what are they also not saying? And looking at some kind of biography, but Phyllis didn't have much of biography. So I really had to focus on the word and use the power of the imagination to open myself up to create this work. And I talk about in this book, this book of poetry, the importance, the realm of imagination, which I know Phyllis did. And she did write a lot at night and there, there are accounts about that. And I think it gave her a sense of peace. I don't think you can never forget being a slave, but give her a sense of peace and a pause at least and have her own thoughts to herself. Cause I write a lot at night too. And I think that was also gateway. And also I think to think about what she had lost that she couldn't write about. Great, yeah, there's uh, there's so much insight there. Yeah, thank you for, for reminding us of, of the fact that, you know, whenever whenever you confront history, or at least, you know, my sense is that whenever one confronts history, what one is mostly confronting is uh, is omission, is, is the absence of, 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 a, of a clean or clear or coherent uh, story. And so, you know, Another of the things that I'm struck struck by in, in reading your book uh, is just the sheer level of ambition uh, that it takes to to wrap one's mind, wrap one's heart, wrap one's 
spiritual sensibility around um yeah the enormity of 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 phyllis's own story and all the stories that she was connected to and so uh i guess what i want to ask is is to what extent um those omissions those those uh historical potholes um gave life to the scope of the book in its in its uh embracing of of mythology and its embrace in, in its embrace of um fantasy and its embrace of um you know like creating creating something that is both a historical text and and a work of broader fiction what what's your what's your relationship to to that i think i think that in the way of fact that there wasn't much written about her freed me because i was able to use my imagination to kind of slip into her role and create you know, kind of going into her skin and kind of creating what she went through, what she experienced. So it freed me that there wasn't much written about her. But um, and that's basically that. But also just, again, I would say her work just speaks very powerfully to the power of story with the mythology and the Greek. And also, but even though she's doing the Greek, she's still referring to her ancestors because all these different African tribes the Fulani and so on are powerful storytellers. So even though she's not quite using African mythology, in a way she is, because she's using her voice in a powerful way, speaking and connecting different things and symbology and so on. So in a way, she is creating her own mythology too, which I think is quite mm -hmm. smart. And I don't think people quite got that. Uh, she's using Greek mythology not only to um, attract her main readers, which is a white audience, but as what she also grew up. But just also, even though she's using more of the Greek mythology, she is still paying homage to her own ancestors. And she referred to Terence, and he was one of those poets from way back. He was free. He was a slave. And he was free because of his gifts of writing. And just referring to another Black poet or writer speaks to that too. But just in her language, how she uses the power of the imagination. One of her poems refers to how the planets revolve around the sun. The Fulani were known for being powerful um, astronomers. They were scientists as well as philosophers. And even in that poem, she's writing to her people and in all these beautiful ways. She's referring, if you read those, those poems, she's referring to her people. And I think as Black people, we need to connect back to that. I think, unfortunately, as you and I know, because slavery and all things that manifested, there are powers, forces that tried to, to tell us that we weren't that, that we weren't scientists, we weren't astronomers, we weren't philosophers, we weren't mathematicians, but we were. Egyptians, mm -hmm. the Ghanaians, I'm part Ghanaian. Uh, my dad's Beijing, Jamaican. So we have, on my dad's, the Ghanaian connection. The Ghanaians are known for being scholars and storytellers and more. The con civilization, right? And so unfortunately that was lost, as you know, with imperialism and all that. They tried to tell us that we weren't those things. But Phyllis reminds us that we were those things. And with her own poetry, when you analyze it, oh yeah, she's talking about, we can't forget, we can't let these people tell us who we are, who we are not. Mm -hmm. And she did that. And if you read those poems, you get it. She is talking to her people too. She's doing two things at the same time. She's talking to, yes, the white audience with the Greek mythology, but she's also talking to her own people. And I know she knows, and she had a good friend, um, 
Uber Tanner, who read and was very, very alert like she was, not just Uber, she knew other black people would pick up this book one way or the other. And she's speaking to people, she's speaking to us too. I really mm. believe that. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there were so many powerful reminders in, in what you just said. And throughout the book, um, this concept of memory seems to be, I would say, like one of the foundational foundational themes and this uh, this sort of, not sort of, this, this very strong uh, recurring sense of uh, the ancestors as, as guides, you know? And I mean, you just, you just said it, but also, um, I guess what I was what I was uh, sensing uh, was something in in the parallels between yourself and Phyllis, in the sense that that perhaps you know so much of Phyllis's strength in in your book uh, comes from being guided by the ancestors. But because I'm a writer, <laughs> I or I get the sense that that you might have also been um, speaking to yourself in in the course of of uh, writing through this book or getting through the process of, of, uh, of, of uh, you know, putting the words on the page. So what, what can you say about um, your, own, your own feeling of, of uh, being guided in your creative acts and how that uh, casts a shadow or casts a light um, on your interpretation of Phyllis's life? I think Phyllis herself guided me big time. I can't mm -hmm. explain it, but she definitely guided me my own ancestors are gone and, and all people know I have multiple ancestral lines. We all do as people of color. I have Irish in me and I have Chinese in me too. Um, my grandmother came from Canton, China, Jamaican Chinese. So I have three powerful ancestors. The Ghanians, the Chinese, and the Irish are all powerful storytellers, all three. And all three guide me, all three. And Phyllis definitely guided me um, with George Floyd I cried a lot, you know, it was hard. I, and I, I think I told you before, I can't watch the whole video. I can't do it. It's just too heartbreaking because it reminded me and all of us that we have a long way to go yet. And I told a friend or a cousin that brought me back to Ronnie King and the LA riots back in 91. It's like, how far have we come really? Really? Mm -hmm. you know, 91, it's like, it's like a, a repeat of what happened then. And it just, I cried, I just, I cried. And just, I remember one guy was on, um, I think it was a broadcaster or interviewer and was online there, it was an interview. And he said, I feel that we are not seen as human beings, that black people don't have any value. And he cried on on, on screen. Mm -hmm. And I cried too, and it's like, sometimes I feel that way. You know, I've been through a lot of obstacle races in my life. People know me, know, I don't have to iterate it again. People know what I've been through and still go through. And it's, it's not an easy journey really. But I think, you know, George Floyd, his death was not in vain. Connecting it back to our ancestors, all of us, yours too, what they dealt with struggle and died from, they did not die in vain either. And I think I said in the book, in the uh, acknowledgments or whatever, um, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. They died for us. So we could have possibility. They died for us. And we have an obligation to continue moving forward the best way we can, just to do the best we can. It won't have to be stellar in anything we do, just to keep moving forward and not giving up. Every day I get up, they're guiding me. 
And they're mm -hmm. telling me, Allison, just keep me forward, plot along. And my great grandmother, Aunt Fate, she said, the race is not for the swiftest, but for those who endure. Mm -hmm. And she's right. We said mm -hmm. to keep enduring, keep enduring. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and that's what pushes me forward. It's not been an easy life, really, for all of us and as human beings, but it's a weird landscape now. Well, that's what keeps pushing me forward. And I talked to one of my cousins. She's like one of the living ancestors. She's in London. And she's got great memory. I'm doing a family tree right now. And I'm working on that. But the power of memory mm -hmm. and the power of keeping moving forward. And memory is an important thing for us because, um, like, in doing the family tree, <laughs> there are no documents. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. of them were destroyed. Mm -hmm. And you know why. Mm -hmm. So memory is very important in many ways for us. So many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I mean, <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the things that I'm struck by. I mean, I guess it's not it's not uh, it's not a surprise. Just just how much how many of the themes that that uh, you're bringing to bear in this conversation are like so deeply embedded in in you know the power of the book. Because uh, yeah, I think I think. One of the, one of the the ways that the book gathers its strength is through this kind of uh, this this belief, you know, this this um, not only in the the resilience of the human spirit, but in in all of the ways that um, you know we we gather strength from memory, from from ancestry, from uh, imagination, from the from the leap of faith that is any creative act, you know, um, and so that's that's uh, something that I wanted to touch on as well because. Uh, your bio, and even in the after, uh, the afterward, you know, the last words of your book, um, they seem to articulate a great faith in in the power in the power of story. You say that that you know stories have the power to to change the world, and so um, I guess this is a, a two part question. One being, um, how did the writing of this book and the research of this book um, shift your world, you know, how did it change, change your, your sense of self or, or fortify your sense of self? And then, uh, how do you imagine, or like what sort of consciousness shift, uh, would you like this book to contribute to, if any, like, what would you like your readers to be left with? Hey, let me have some water. Not gonna <laughs> <laughs> no problem. It was a, it was a long question. So, you know, it's, uh, okay. <laughs> a good, repeat it one more time. I got to get it in my head. Repeat it yeah, one more yeah. time. No, no, it's just, it's just about, you know, because reading the book, it's very obvious that, that your faith in the power of story and the power of words and the power of creativity is, is all over it, you know? And so I know that, that that faith is something that you live with as well. So how how did the how did your faith in the power of words and the power of story, um, like orient your experience of writing this thing? You know, if if stories have the power to change the world, how did the writing of this story change you? Is is what I'm okay, trying okay, to I'll change. I'll change. I think it just reaffirmed how things are possible. And then with Phyllis, she influenced so many people, which I chronicled in the poetry collection. And um, there's, there's one abolitionist, his name, I can't remember. Anyway, one abolitionist, and I wrote about him in there. And he came much later, but his grandmother had a copy of the book. 
And I was looking at that and thinking, there you go. And it's like her words had a direct influence on this guy becoming an abolitionist because the grandmother had a copy of the book and doing their online research and the holy. And then all these other connections came. And then this Phyllis Wheatley, this Phyllis Wheatley book club or Phyllis Wheatley club. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. <laughs> and I was looking at that and basically it was an organization to help black women in the States get work through social connections or housing and that kind of thing. And they called it the, the Phyllis Wheatley Club and I had no idea. And then the one member, her daughter became a congresswoman and I chronicled her in the book. So there's this chain reaction. She influenced this uh, abolitionist. She influenced this woman being part of this Phyllis Wheatley Club. She got, you know, different jobs and she would create a lot of different firsts, being the first black woman to do this, do that, in these different sectors of, of employment. And then her daughter being congresswoman and this whole chain reaction, chain reaction. Because the mother of this um, congresswoman told her, you know, that she was a child prodigy in the importance of education. And the mother did a lot in, uh, in terms of college and that, and so did the daughter. And she did a BA, and I think she might have done her master's too, and then she became a congresswoman. So this this chain reaction. Uh, for me, it just, it just reaffirmed the importance of imagination, mm-hmm. um, importance of the ancestry, and, and faith. Because I know at the end for her, well, she died alone with a child mm-hmm. at her breast, which is really tragic. I know... There's two things going on. One, she was not alone. She was a person of faith. She was Christian. And I know that the angels were around her at that moment. And Jesus was around her. And I know that. But I also think it would have been nice if she had one actual human being there too, which Mm -hmm. she did not have. Mm -hmm. But I think with her power of her faith, she knew, she felt comforted that the angels were around her at that moment and took her home. Mm-hmm. To her ancestors, which I kind of chronicle in the poems, as you know. I just think, I think about what she did with not a lot of resources and traveling, navigating a system that was very anti-black. Um, a lot of people who were helping her, whether slave owners themselves or believe that slavery was right. And she had to get help from these people. And that's not an easy thing to do to get your own freedom and also create a book to be a spark for other people's freedom. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping with not just my book, but there are other academics and scholars seeing what she was actually doing. I'm hoping now they really will see what she actually was doing. Okay. You know, she was helping her own people too. Mm. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a list of questions and this wasn't on it, but you know, Hearing you, hearing you speak is is because you keep coming back to to sort of this uh, academic misconception around around Phyllis's intentions. So, like, what what uh, what do you see as as some of the greatest misconceptions or like ways that that uh, Phyllis has either been uh, underrated or or yeah mis misread over time or mis miswritten about? Well, I think some people serious as literary Uncle Tom because she focused more on the, the Greek mythology and white imagery and all that, but it's not what she was doing. Hmm. She knew her audience was mainly white because as you and I know, a lot of black people didn't know how to read. 
And there are ones who found a way incognito to learn how to read, and other slaves taught each other. We had to keep that very underground because the slave masters found out they would, they would kill you. <laughs> it's game over, right? Mm -hmm. So you had to keep those gifts hidden. So her main audience was a white audience, right, for this abolitionist movement. And she didn't know a lot of black people, but the main drive was the white audience to be part of this abolitionist movement to see that slavery was wrong. So obviously your audience is mainly white. You got to focus more on the Greek mythology and that, don't you, right, to get your audience. And that's what she was doing. But she was also in the wordplay with the patron and, and referring to that poet, the black poet who got his freedom, right, from his skills. She mentions names several times in the book. So she wasn't that. And it's just interesting how people don't quite get that. And also the fact that she couldn't write out say that slavery was evil. She kind of alluded to it in one of the poems, but you can't really go out and quite say it, you know, because her mm -hmm. life would have been jeopardy. And it mm -hmm. was a reality back. That was a reality. So she had to walk a very fine line, which I think people don't quite get. Okay. But there's some scholars out there who actually get it, and that's a victory. But more people need to get that, that she was using the Greek mythology because her base was a white audience that she wanted because they had resources to help move along the abolitionist movement as well as black people. And later in time with other abolitionists, like Harriet Tubman and so on and so forth, they had allies, white people, right? They helped the movement too. They did, right? You can't pretend they didn't. Right, we had allies too, so I think really they didn't get what she was doing. And I also would say, again, I think academia, when I was at the UVA, there was still a focus on reading between the lines and reading the text, which I think is they've kind of gone off track with focusing more on theory. Now, I've studied theory in university, I've done it in grad school. Theory can be very, very useful, it can be very useful. But I think to have too much of a focus on theory and not to have enough focus on a text is not a good way to go. And I've done both. So I've done grad school, I've done undergrad, I've done it. So I know mm -hmm. <laughs> it's important to focus on the word, the text itself. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for, for digging as deep as you, you had to dig to, uh, yeah, to unearth not, not, only, not only the facts of Phyllis's life, but, uh, you know, the living, breathing sort of, human and spiritual importance of, of uh, yeah, bringing these stories to light. Um, yeah, so I think, I think uh, unless there are audience questions that I'm, that I'm not seeing, I think we're just about uh, out of time. So, so yeah, all I have, all I have is thanks. Uh, thank you to the Writers Guild of Alberta for, for, you know, bringing Allison and I together to have this chat. Uh, thank you to uh, the sponsor of this online reading series, which is the Rose Foundation. Thank you to uh, Jason Norman for, for being the person uh, to bring this all together. And of course, thank you to your publisher, the University of Calgary Press. Um, how and where can we, can we get the book today? I, I was told, a little birdie told me <laughs> that the book, the book actually comes out, like it's on sale like today, like as of this, this very moment. Um, so do we just go to the University of Calgary Press or? You can do that. I think Amazon, you go on Amazon. I'm sure you can go to University of Calgary Press, their website. And I think Audrey's, and yet through Audrey's too. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll, 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 we'll stay local. We'll stay local. 
if you're in Edmonton, go to go to Audrey's books. You know, one of one of Edmonton's only, or perhaps Edmonton's only independent, uh, one of one of few uh, independent bookstores. So yeah, let's uh, let's support Allison. Let's support local bookstores. Uh, yeah, thank you all for for being here. Uh, I give a virtual wave to the people who uh, have listened on YouTube and will listen. Uh, my name is Brandon Went. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to hear from you in this way, Allison. And I hope hope you have a good evening, and everyone listening and watching uh, continues to have a great evening. Peace and love. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Good night.